Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Literally day one, I walked into that costume department and it just, my brain exploded. I was just like, I can't believe that this exists and this is real, that this could be a career. Oh, I just get to like sit down with a glue gun and like glue gun like faux fur onto a giant bear costume. Like, amazed, like what? Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. And whose voice did we hear at the top of the show? June, we heard the delightful voice of Dana Covarrubias, who designs costumes for TV and film. What kinds of shows has she worked on, and, and why did you want to talk with her right now? Dana mostly works in TV, and she mostly works in stuff that's set in the present day. So she did the costumes for a season of Inside Amy Schumer. She did Master of None. She did a season of Quantico. Uh, and now, though, she is doing the hit Hulu TV show, Only Murders in the Building, which is a show I love and also has a very thoughtful approach to its design and visual style. So what do listeners who may not yet have watched Only Murders in the Building need to know about that show to get the most out of this interview? What kind of show is it? Well, it is a half-hour murder mystery comedy about mm. three true crime podcast obsessives who attempt to solve a mysterious death in their uh, Tony old-school, gigantic Upper West Side Manhattan apartment building. Um, mm. It's a huge hit for Hulu right now, in part because those three podcast obsessives are played by Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. Actually, the cast is stacked with ringers from the theater and comedy world which only kind of adds to its appeal. But also, you know, the tone of it's kind of complicated because it's both a murder mystery and a comedy, and it could mm. very easily have been kind of lazy and shticky, but it's not. And particularly in terms of its visual style, there is a lot uh, going on. So you told me who's playing the main characters, uh, but what kind of people are the characters played by Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. So Steve Martin plays a has-been television actor who had a kind of Kojak-like TV show called Brazos. Uh, and his character's name is Charles Hayden Savage, and he's become a kind of shut-in uh, since the end of the TV show. And then Martin Short plays a Broadway director named Oliver Putnam, who's fallen on to hard times after a disastrous uh, flop about 15 years earlier and has not been able to really get work since then. And then Selena Gomez plays Mabel Moore 
Laura. Uh, and actually her past is somewhat mysterious and uncovering it is part of the, the story of the TV show. So I don't really want to spoil anything, but, mm-hmm. but she is a, 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 the niece of someone who lives in the building who's sort of squatting in her aunt's apartment and slowly renovating it. I see. I think you might also say that Oliver's last show was a belly flop. It was. It was a belly flop. Yes, yes. It was a show called Splash, which it's unclear whether it was adapted from the film Splash or not, but it was a a musical that's their sort of version of Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. It was a very expensive fiasco that ended in, in multiple injuries and lawsuits. I am really excited to hear this interview. But first, I believe you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? In fact, I do. Slate Plus members will hear a bit about how Dana approached costuming the characters who have to make a big impression in a very short period of time. These are the folks who have one to two scenes in the show, but you need to know a lot about them immediately. Uh, And we also talked about how she conquers being creatively blocked. I mean, they don't they don't call it costume designers block, but costume (laughs) designers get blocked, too. So how does she deal with it? And what can we learn from that uh, for our own creative pursuits? That sounds fascinating. Unfortunately, it's incredibly easy to subscribe to Slate Plus. And if you do, you'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to articles on Slate.com without hitting a paywall, bonus episodes of shows like How to Do It and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Dana Kofarubias. the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Let's start with the basics. Who are you and what do you do? Hi, I am Dana Covarubias and I am a costume designer. And I just uh, costume designed a show that just came out called Only Murders in the Building with Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez. And it's very exciting. 
so how did you come to be a costume designer? Is that something you always wanted to do or were you like bitten by a radioactive costume and then it, <laughs> it turned you into a costume designer? I wish. Um, well, you know, it's funny. So I grew up in Texas and I think that, you know, where it all started probably was that my parents both had uh, two jobs and their second jobs were working in a mall. So I literally was just raised in malls. Um, I was in malls all the time. And as a kid, I remember I would just, you know, explore all the stores and I would be like, you know, I think like, I can remember being like five years old and like hiding under the clothing racks and like rubbing all the fabric of the clothing on my face. And my mom would get really mad. She'd be like, stop, like, that's someone to try to sell that. And I'd just be like rubbing. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just obsessed with like the textures and, you know, I was just exploring this like hilarious weird world of malls and I so I grew up there a lot I was in the mall all the time and then um I got involved in theater probably in like middle school I started doing like acting and like musicals and plays and stuff like that and um got really into it in high school and ended up going to New York to audition for theater schools and got into a SUNY purchase and I was there Mm -hmm. for about a year and a half doing sort of the performance side of it And then I transferred to Fordham University at Lincoln Center, that sort of like the arts campus. And then probably my second to last year there, a friend of mine who was directing a play asked if I could costume design his show. I had never done anything like that before. And I just fell in love. I was just, I think, I think with performance for me, it was always like, it was always really hard. I would always get so nervous and like, you know, I, I don't know, like anytime I had to audition or anything like that, it was just terrifying. And as soon as I was like, oh, this is a way I can be creatively involved, but not have to be in front of the camera um, or on the stage, um, it was great. And I just was fascinated by the psychological element of it, you know, thinking about why someone wears something, what is their budget, like where, you know, where can they go to shop? How are they feeling that day? And how does that affect how they're dressing that day? You know, all that kind of psychological stuff that goes into it. I mean, it sounds like it almost sounds like you you approach costume design like an actor right it's like mm-hmm. like what is reflecting of the character and their given circumstances yeah. and their their backstory and all that stuff I, I've taught myself over the years about fashion you know and and learned more about designers and all of that but originally you know all I thought about was the psychological approach mm-hmm. I, I think you know I had to really train myself and teach myself about designers and um, you know a lot of people in this world in our industry come from the other side of the world they come from the fashion world and they have all that knowledge but yeah it's been sort of a self-teaching thing but I think that's good I think it's better to come in my mind to come from the psychological point of view because that's I think more truthful in, in, in the way you know. So once you realized you wanted to do this, though, you were you were still in school for acting, right? So like, how did you then yeah. make that transition? <laughs> how did you learn how to do what you do now? I just started um, asking more friends if I could costume design their shows. And then when I graduated, I I think I was acting in a student film, like a small little budget. And I made friends with the girl who was the costume designer. And I was like, how did you get into this? Like, this is what I really want to do. And she directed me to Mandy.com. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that website? I I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. But it was like so long ago. I also studied theater in New York State. I I am aware of Mandy.com. So she directed me to that. And she was like, sometimes they post little jobs or whatever on there. So I looked on there and I happened to just find, like, just luck of the draw, like found 
a posting um, by a designer looking for an intern back when you could have interns. We don't really do have interns anymore, but back when you could have an intern in the film world um, for being a costume intern on a sketch comedy non-union TV show. Um, And I applied and I got it. And literally day one, I walked into that costume department and it just, my brain exploded. I was just like, I can't believe that this exists and this is real and that this could be a career. And it just made everything was like, oh, this is, this is all my training. This is all the shopping. Like I just knew, you know, and then it was like, also has the crafting element. Like I started sewing when I was young and my mom always was very crafty and we were always making things all the time. And I was like, oh, I just get to like sit down with a glue gun and like glue gun, like faux fur onto a giant bear costume. Right. Like amazed. Like what? Yes. Amazing. (laughs) It's funny because, you know, the the last costume designer that we interviewed for this show started uh, in a similar role on Saturday Night Live with mm-hmm. sketch comedy. Yeah. And, you know, she was talking about having to work that quickly, making those big oh choices was was hugely influential on in her practice later. Did you did you find that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think that because you are creating hundreds of worlds, you're not creating one world, you're creating hundreds and thousands of different worlds. Um, you know, so on that, that job was, um, why does kids, you know, that was like the first job I ever did, um, as an intern. And then I've also designed one of the seasons of inside Amy Schumer and same thing. It's sketch comedy. You know, you have 60 sketches or 80 sketches that you're producing in one season. You have to be prepared for all of them all the time. So it just makes you just kind of like, you're like, okay, I need to be the master of this schedule. I need to understand all the timelines. I need to have my hand in every little thing that's going on and make sure everything is, you know, happening when it needs to happen and not be too precious about everything. I think that it really trains you to know where to focus your energy, Mm. which is, I think, one of the hardest parts of being a costume designer in film and television or just working in film and television, I think, in general. It's like knowing when something is important and when you should care about it. And knowing when it's like, whatever, we're going to see that costume for two seconds. It's not a big deal. Let's move on. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That button might not be in the right. Yeah. It might, yeah, it might not match or whatever, but no one's going to see fine. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there something particular about costuming for comedy that you feel drawn to or that you feel is particularly rewarding? I think there's something that's just so joyful about working in comedy. I mean, generally, like you're in these fittings with these comedians and you are just, I'm just like crying laughing, like, Mm. like just the whole fitting. And I'm like, this is just so fun. And then I think the other thing that I really like about working in comedy and why I keep getting work in comedy stuff is because I, I really like to achieve that balance of making sure it's not going too silly or too Mm. on the nose or too over the top, you know, like I think I have a good eye for bringing it back into reality and making sure that it's based in something real and something psychological, you know, like that these are still real people, even though they're hilarious and they're comedians, they're still, um, you know, thinking, feeling real human beings. (laughs) Um, And yeah, always approaching it from a psychological view versus just thinking like, what's the funniest, you know? Right. You know, I was thinking about that because in only murders in the building, it, it strikes me the costumes are a little bit heightened, right? Mm-hmm. They're, a, they're a little bit heightened. They're a little bit, you know, they're expressing some, some core essence of the character in a way that, that is not exactly realistic, but there's also this balance where if you go too far with that, 
then there is no coherent world being created and it's just sort of, you know, yucks for their own sake or whatever. Yeah. And, I, and I'm curious about how you navigate that balance. I mean, are, have there been times where you've been like, oh, this is pushing too far. I need to pull this back or wh- whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, that's like number one job of a costume designer in my mind is finding the right balance of where each project lies. And I think with this one, what was so interesting was that we had this combination of the sort of mystery world and the comedy world. And so finding that balance of like, you know, making sure that we weren't going too far was really, really important. And I think of the clearest sort of story to show how we did that was maybe with Marty's purple coat look that he wears in the first episode. Um, that coat is amazing, by the it's way. It's such a good coat. It's I had a, a bunch coat. of questions written down about the coat, <laughs> oh, yeah. but we could jump there. Let's talk about oh, that yeah, coat. Sure. So that coat is this beautiful royal purple full-length um, Hater Ackerman coat. And, you know, we took... God, I think I was, it was actually really scary. We were like up until I think the day before shooting that scene or maybe two days before. And we still weren't sure like what, what is the coat? Like which coat is it going to be? And we had, I think four or five racks of coat options for him for that one look that we sourced from all over the world. And we had the craziest, we had like really crazy ones that had like, you know, giant like four inch pile faux fur and crazy patterns, like really avant-garde stuff with like, you know, straps hanging all over, you know, like we'd, we had some really wild ones, but, you know, Marty was really insistent that, you know, that he kept being like, you know, I'm, I'm the comedy, like I'm the, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I want to be featured, you know, he didn't, he wanted to make sure that the costume wasn't going to overpower him, right. which is so important. And I'm glad that he, you know, those sometimes when an actor comes in and says something like that, it's really wonderful because they're sort of someone else, like a, you know, someone else might make the sort of funnier, you know, jokier call and be like, let's go with the big, crazy, you know, easy joke, easy laugh. Right. The epaulets and the, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he was, so it was nice that he was there to help sort of balance that world and and say like, no, it's, it should still be real. It should still be, why am I wearing this coat? It can't be for no reason. You know, so right. we, we came up with a whole concept of like that he was coming from like a meeting with a director for a new show he's trying to do. So he put on his nicest coat, his like most fancy, you know coat i mean the man's going into debt and he has this like six thousand dollar coat um so but that's we also justified that we thought you know oh he would have like tons of credit cards where he's just maxing them all out to get the clothing he wants (laughs) right and and part of the thing with that character is that we don't know he's in debt at first i mean at first we think he's you know wealthy you know he, he might not be as successful as he was but but we don't actually know at that point i don't think the straits that he's in that's a that's actually a kind of reveal at the very end of the episode yeah. and we thought you know this character did have a heyday you know he had time when he obviously he has that beautiful apartment like he obviously had money at some point um so you know we thought well he would have some really nice pieces mm-hmm. in his closet um but then you know, we, we kind of looked at each of our main characters and thought, you know, how are each of them using their clothing as a tool to get what they want or as a, you know, the clothing itself, how is it involved in the mystery? Well, and there's one way, of course, that the clothing is directly involved in the mystery, which is that they're looking for someone who's wearing a particular piece of yeah. clothing, a, a tie-dye hoodie. Was that yeah. always in the script that it was going to be a tie-dye hoodie or was that, did that yeah. grow out of conversations with you or? No, it was scripted. It was always scripted as tie-dye guy. And I wonder, you know, actually, actually 
I never thought that it was a funny phrase, tie-dye guy, when I read it on the page. But as soon as Steve started saying it, I was like, oh, that's why they made it tie-dye guy, because it's hilarious when Steve says it. I will say this is our strongest suspect yet, next to tie-dye guy. Enough with tie-dye guy. We cannot forget about tie-dye guy. But no, it was always scripted that. But we, again, like, you know, had tons of options and racks and racks and racks and not to give anything away about the show, but we had to also have many, many multiples of this hoodie and getting a multiple of something that's tie-dyed is not easy um, because tie-dye is, you know, random, obviously, like when you're creating (laughs) tie-dye, it's random. Um, So we got the best we could um, matches, but that was sort of limited our options of like what we could, you know, find. Yeah, I mean, this is so fascinating because you talk about one piece of clothing. I mean, you said this as well with the coats that you had racks and racks of options. How do you not get overwhelmed by the the choices? I mean, choice paralysis oh, is a real God. thing that human oh, beings yes. face, right? Well, so like, yes. oh, this one's green and red. Is is green and red the right swirl on this tie dye, or does it want to be blue and yellow? <laughs> like, what you know? How do you yeah. how do you stop that from happening? Well, it does happen. It just does happen. It's just part of the process. It's always part of the process. And but I think. The process is my favorite part of the job. So I think that's really fun. You know, like I like it when I love having those discussions with the directors or the producers or the actors being like, oh, should it be yellow? Oh, yeah, well, let's try yellow. Let's try to, you know, we did with those hoodies like we did do. So we found one that we really liked. But then we were like, is it too light colored? Should we try to dye it? We tried to dye it. We tried to paint it. We tried to like over dye it. But then when you realize when you over dye it, then like the yellow becomes a green and we didn't want it to be green because we have to work with green screens. So it was like this whole, you know, it's just, it is a whole process. And, you know, a lot of times you get to the end of that process and you're back at square. Like you basically just go back to the original thing you bought. (laughs) That happens all the time where you spend like a month trying to figure something out and then you're like, oh, actually just the first thing we had was what was best. Has that happened enough that you're not annoyed by it anymore? Are you just sort of like, oh, well, Well, we just had to do this. That's how we had to get here. That's that's what it is. Yeah, I think you just have to accept that that's very much part of the creative process in film world. And Mm. I think working in sketch comedy really trained me for that. I think I learned very early on, like nothing is precious, like you can't you can't put too much of your heart and soul into anything because it's going to change because that's just television. Like it's, they're going to rewrite something and they're going to cut something. And I mean, there have been more devastating like script cutting things for us that I'm just like, Oh, it is painful, but you take like a day you're sad about it. And then the next day you just have to move on. You just have to, you know, and then you just decide where to put your energy next. You're like, okay, well that's done. So mm, where does my yeah, energy yeah. go now? <laughs> right. Right. Was that something you had to kind of learn how to do? I think it came easily to me. I don't know why. I think it just happens all of the time where, you know, people don't realize, I mean, maybe people do, but, um, you know, I think people may not realize like how many opinions are involved in every single costume decision. You know, it's not just me coming in and being like, I want it to be this, you know, it's like the actors very much involved in the fitting. The directors are very much involved. The producers are very much involved. And it's, you know, 20 people, you know, ultimately deciding, Right. And then they, and then there's stuff like, you know, the lighting and the oh, camera work DP, and the yeah. color palette mm-hmm. of the set mm-hmm. and your decisions influence all that other stuff at the same time. Sure. And then there's another we even within my department, there's the whole decision making process where, you know, I I have shoppers that are like full time shoppers that work for me and assistants and assistant designers. And I will 
come up with the concept and the design, and then I will give that information to them, and then they go out shopping. So they might bring something back that's something that I wouldn't have personally shopped, but I see it. I they get it. They use their design brain. <laughs> they go and get it, and then I see it. And I'm like, ooh, I didn't even think about this. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. This is perfect. Well, and I imagine being able to have like a ton of different options is really helpful Huge. for that. You know, it, if you, if the budget was lower and it's sort of like we have three yes. things, then it, then yeah. it becomes the stakes get much higher for each individual decision. Yeah, that's true. If it's 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 very you feel very lucky when you're working on a bigger budgeted project. Because I think in my mind, I guess what doesn't, what helps me not be stressed (laughs) is just knowing that, you know, I'm in New York City, I'm never five minutes, 10 minutes away from some kind of store, and I have a credit card. (laughs) So I'm like, worst comes to worst, if all hell breaks loose and like, you know, an actor hates something or a director's like, this isn't going to work. I hate everything. You know, I'm just like, okay, I'll be back in 15 minutes, you know, like, and you, you learn to be like an amazing quick shopper and quick thinker. Um, yeah. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Dana Covarrubias. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. One of the things we would love to do on this show is help solve your creative problems, whether it's a question about preparation, setting the mood so you can do your best work, anything at all, send them to us at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Dana Covarrubias. I would love to talk to you a bit about the um, costumes for Charles and, and Mabel, since we've already talked about about Oliver. What what were the conversations that led to? You know, um, I would say Charles, Steve Martin's character, in some ways, is the most restrained dresser mm-hmm. of, of all of them. So so how did that costume and and you know very specific color palette and things like that uh, evolve uh, during the pre production process into what we see now? We had a Zoom meeting very early on in prep, and um, Steve mentioned that as a character, he said there has never been a movie or anything he's ever been in where he wore jeans. So that was sort of the first sort of insight into what he wanted for Charles and what we, you know, how we were going to approach that character. But he was just like, I've just never worn jeans. I think I should wear jeans. We're like, okay, cool. Great. Um, And then otherwise I think, you know, it was very like Steve has a similar way of dressing where it's just, it's kind of repetitive in a way where it's just a really nice button down, really nice blazer jeans and sneakers. And that's kind of his day-to-day look. And so we sort of took that, and figured out how to make it a little more in our world. Um, But the main thought process behind 
his character was just that he basically wants to, you know, he finds comfort in his clothing, that he's looking for stability and he's looking for repetition. And he's a character who is sort of, you know, they're, they're all stuck in the past in some way, each of them. And the way that he is sort of reliving his past is by dressing in a similar way to how his character Brazos dressed. So he sort of thought that the hat would be like a bit of a, you know, callback to his Brazos detective character and that he's sort of mimicking this silhouette mm. that he was famous for in the 90s. And that he, you know, we had all of his shirts made by Anto Beverly Hills, who they are shirt makers for television and film. And they made Steve's shirts for The Jerk. And ever since The Jerk, they have been making Steve's shirts. So we sort of thought, you know, that would be an interesting thing that Steve actually does in his real life that we could also say that Charles is doing where you're used to a thing, you know it works, you know it fits, they have your measurements, they just do a perfect shirt for you. <laughs> so he has, you know, we I think we ordered, you know, something like 20 shirts in all the colors, tons of different patterns, and they're the exact same shirt. Mm. And that's it. And it's like, okay, so we, you know, Brazos, when he was, when Brazos was on television, you know, Charles had his shirts made by Anto. And so we sort of thought, oh, Charles would just continue getting his shirts from Anto. Um, right. So, so that's interesting. Cause so it sounds like the way you brought Steve Martin's clothing into the world of this show is to kind of just heighten the repetitiveness of it a yeah, little bit because exactly. he's someone who's trapped in all of these routines. We see in the first episode, he makes the omelet over and over again and throws it out. And so this is like the clothing version, version of, that. of that. So even if the color of the shirt is different or whatever, mm -hmm. the cut is exactly the same. It's always referencing the same silhouette. He just sticks to what he knows. And that's, he's one of those people, he's like put himself in a box and he's just very happy in that little box. He's just <laughs> very comfortable. You know, some designers, when they first get a script, the thing they're looking at is how many outfits am I responsible for? Mm. You know, they immediately are going to that, right? What's the mm -hmm. budget? How many outfits am I yeah. responsible for? Or what season is it? What are the, uh, mm -hmm. what do we used to say in script analysis? The, the given circumstances and the yeah. environmental factors of the world or whatever. What, what about you? When you first read a script, when you first got the script for Only Murders in the Building, uh, what is your eye immediately drawn to in that? What are you thinking about right off the bat? I think I'm always thinking about mood, like, I think I really, I always read a script first for pleasure. You know, like as an audience member, I always just do one pass first where it's just, I'm just trying to get into the mood of whatever the script is giving me. Mm. I love it when script um, writers put in notes about music. Um, yeah, really. Like, and then I, sometimes I'll put on music and I'll read the script to the music and it just, I don't know, it just gets my creative brain going when I just, for some reason, when I have music going, right. um, you know, I, I did that show master of none and Aziz would in every scene, put a song that he wanted to be playing under each, uh, scene and, and it, you know, all the music changed later on, um, in the show, obviously, but it just gave such a insight to, you know, what the mood of the project was. Um, so I think, yeah, I'm always looking for mood first, and just general sort of design concepts and looking really deeply at the script. And I guess at the like psychological, you know, like seeing that omelet thing and thinking like, 
oh, he's something, what's going on with him? <laughs> you know, like if he's making this omelet over and over again, you know, or there were little notes about Selena's character, you know, wanting to protect herself, like wanting to make sure that people leave her alone. And um, so, so from that, we decided that her costumes were like going to be a kind of armor that she would like protect herself um, from other people. Um, Can you speak a little bit more about that? So what yeah. is what is the nature of that armor? How does that how do we see that armor reflected in the show? You know, one of the things that uh, was interesting in my interview for the job was that John Hoffman, our show creator, um, mentioned that he saw there's a photo. I put a photo of myself on my website and um, I'm wearing like this big faux fur coat and like boots and a hat and a winter hat and he just loved that photo. He was like, you just look so like New York tough girl. <laughs> and, um, and he was like, I kind of like that vibe for Mabel. And I think that it's just something that New York City women understand about how you need to dress in the city. You, you like in Selena's character, Mabel says this in the first, um, her dialogue in the first scene that she, you know, all eyes are on you and, and you have to navigate how to protect yourself so I think we were thinking, you know, she's wearing these like sort of coats that are like really big and kind of act as like a shell around her. <laughs> um, and then the sunglasses and then the headphones and then the, you know, the hat and the like really heavy treaded combat boots. You know, it was all sort of like an, an armor layer to protect her against this outside world um, that she's kind of running from. You mentioned having, you know, early conversations with with John Hoffman, who's the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, so those first conversations, what do you like to know from your directors or your showrunners or whoever you're interfacing with at the beginning of your process? Like when you go into those first meetings, what can they do that's sort of most helpful to you? First of all, I just have to say that John Hoffman is the best. He's like the sweetest, um, smartest, creative, amazing person to work with. Um, I'm trying to think what he did because I just loved interacting with him. He's just so clear. I think that's what it is. I think just having a very clear vision. Um, so I think when we started the process, he had like a, I, I don't remember if it was mood boards or it was, I feel like there was some video component. It was like a whole like presentation thing that he had and I think I saw it after I was hired. Like we had like a meeting with maybe myself, um, the production designer, Kurt Beach, and um, maybe the composer was there too. I can't remember, but um, a bunch of the creative heads were there. And he kind of did like a little presentation for us, which was amazing. I've never had anyone do that before. And it just immediately told us where we needed to go, you know, and like where we needed to start and how we could start. And that was just super helpful. And it was mostly, I think, just images, you know, it was just like, maybe he played a little bit of music and maybe it was, um, it was just images and it was ideas on casting, you know, like a lot of it hadn't been cast. We had the main three people, of course, but like the rest of the cast hadn't, um, come in yet. So, you know, but he had like sort of headshots of people he imagined this character might be. And so that just gave us a very clear idea of where, you know, he wanted to go with the whole look. Hmm. Um, it was super helpful. Do you do a lot of sketching before the shopping period? Do you, no. do, do you do a lot of that? Generally, I do mood boards um, just with image research. Um, and that is my favorite part of the job. I could do really? that 
forever and ever and ever. I like if, yeah, I just yeah. love what? finding images and putting together mood boards. It's so fun. I love research too. And we talk oh, about research the all the time on this show. So what is your research process? Like if it's your favorite <laughs> part, if your favorite part, uh, dro- drop some science on us about it. Oh God, I love it. Um, well, it's a combo. So a lot of it is out on the street. You know, a lot of it is physically going to whatever neighborhood or, you know, place where the show is taking place and finding, you know, like in this case, like going to the Upper West Side and finding a building that's similar to the Arconia and just people watching. You know, I've lived in New York for 20 years almost, so I definitely already have all that sort of stored in my my mind's eye um, from living here for so long. And it definitely as a costume designer, you're constantly clocking and telling yourself to remember things that you see. Um, you know, you see a guy wearing bowling shoes with a three-piece suit and you're like, why is he wearing bowling shoes with a three-piece suit? That's amazing. I need to remember that. Um, so you're always, you have this catalog in your brain, but sometimes it's nice just to get a refresh. So I usually go to that place and kind of sit, just have a coffee and just people watch. And that is, that's the first thing I do. And then, um, and then the mood boards, I mean, I, It's mostly scouring the internet for good images, images that I feel like make sense for that character. But sometimes it's an image of a piece of fabric. Sometimes it's an image of like, it can be like really tonal. It can be just like a chair, an empty chair on a stage that just has like a mood. And I think like people are like, why does, how does this affect the costumes? And I'm like, I don't know. It just does. Like it just, it does. Like it's just the mood um, of it. Um, Solitude. Solitude. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I, so a lot of my mood boards, you know, I'll definitely always have, I usually always find photos of the actual actor who's playing the character. So I usually do a mood board for color palette for each character that's just about color palette. And then I do individual mood boards for each character. And I mean every character. I mean every character in the entire show. (laughs) Um, And like even background, you know, if there's like a really specific background type, I'll do mood boards, you know, obviously for our show, the the Arconians, the other people living in the building were a specific, very specific thing. I even, I gave them all jobs. (laughs) I think I went really crazy with it um but uh jamie babbitt who was one of our producers um and directors she loved it she was like you gave them jobs she was like what do they do and i was like well that guy is a tech guy like she's an accountant <laughs> like that guy was like uh really he was married but he got like he made all this money in the stock market and then he divorced his wife and now he has a 20 year old girlfriend you know like <laughs> crazy stories um it's so funny because that that's again what an actor does right you construct yeah, the invented <laughs> totally. backstory for your character so that you can know what your character's action yeah. is yeah exactly exactly um but yeah I, I literally make a mood board for even like a day player who has like three lines i'll make a mood board for that yeah. person but because I, I just otherwise it can feel like if you don't have something in mind when you're when i'm sending my shoppers out or or when i'm shopping or in the fitting, then it kind of, I feel like things get cookie cutter, you know, like you can very easily just go into like, Oh, just put them in a Navy polo and some khakis and call it a day, you know, like, (laughs) but if you take 10 minutes to sit down and research and think a little bit more deeply about who this person is and where they're coming from, it ultimately just makes your design so much more full and rich. So is there a kind of project as a costume designer that you haven't worked on yet that you really want to do? Like, do you really want to do opera? Do you really want to do a period piece? Like, is there, is there something that you haven't done that you, that you really want to try your hand at? 
you know what? I, it would be like a dream, dream job. It was yeah. like that, that movie, Her, where oh, it's yeah. like future, but like a subtle, like a really subtle future. You know, it's mm-hmm. just beautiful. Like I thought that design was amazing, amazing. So yeah, I think, I think, um, sci- I love sci-fi. I'm just a sci-fi. I love sci-fi. So oh yeah, like me that? too. Me too. Sci-fi's, yeah, it's the best. Yeah, you think so about think, those, um, those Blade Runner, the original uh, Blade Runner costumes where it's the noir stuff, but they're like oh wearing God. shoes on their head yeah. and they have all these crazy pattern clashes. And- oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's just sci-fi. You can just, you know, fifth, I've probably seen the movie Fifth Element like 5,000 times. Um, the you cigarettes, know, right? With the long uh, filters, then the teeny bit of cigarette at the everything. end. Everything. I mean, just every, yeah. uh, the stewardesses on the, um, the, whatever the ship is that they take over those right. stewardess costumes are just like, you know, but yeah, I think something doing sci-fi would be amazing. Cause it's, you know, you're really starting from scratch mm-hmm. and you have to think about, you know, uh, beyond the psychological part of it, you've been thinking about functionality, you know, right. you're thinking about like in this world, what fabrics have been created, um, and of course, you know, in the future, we're all going to be wearing something that's like smart, probably. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, in what, in what way is my shirt, can my shirt read my body temperature? Is it cooling me down? Is it, you know, so you get to think of all these like cool tech elements that could possibly exist in this future world. That's amazing. Well, <laughs> uh, Dana, thank you so much for joining us this week and telling us all about your process. Thank you so much. It was so fun. Isaac. I really enjoyed that conversation. And Dana just seems like she would be a very cool person to work with. We often talk about collaboration on this show, but Dana seems to find working with others truly generative. And as someone who can be a bit of a hermit, I found that quite inspiring and I was a little bit jealous. I was also struck by how important first jobs can be. Hers was on a sketch comedy show where you just need to have a lot of different looks and you don't have the time or the money to make everything perfect. And that seems to have really shaped her way of working pretty significantly. She really knows how to prioritize now. Yeah, that is very true. And, you know, Brenda Abandondolo, the costume designer that I interviewed last year here on Working, also started in sketch comedy. I mean, it seems like it's a pretty good trial by fire, frankly. You have to work really fast. You have to do everything from, you know, costuming space aliens to something very <laughs> realistic. Uh, you know, you you don't have a lot of time for your inner critic to take over and, and hamstring your process. I mean, it seems like a, a, a pretty great place to start. Do you think that things that you did early in your career have shaped the way you work now? I mean, yes, I, I'm sure they did in, in that everything you do in the past shapes the, the present day you. But to, to think about it in more specifics, I do think training as a director and working as a director taught me some ways of reading that are really focused on dramatic action and on structure. And those are things I really care about a lot as a writer. Um, and so you know, like a lot of what I'm doing in my book is like managing narrative tension so that people still want to keep reading it or, you know, yeah. what causes what to happen and, and really articulating that, that chain of incident in a really clear way. And and that's a lot of that comes from just learning how to read scripts as a director, I think. Uh, also, you know, the other thing you do as a director is it's a lot of 
how does everyone contribute from their own point of view and their own creative discipline in order to create something that's sort of larger than any one person and you know Uh any one department um you know the play you create is sort of more than the script it's more than the actors it's more than you it's bigger than you and that doesn't translate exactly to writing a book because so much of it is you on your own but (laughs) the idea that you're making something that is bigger than yourself and you are in fact serving it and the different components of it you know somehow it transcends the different components of it to be this new thing that that's a helpful way of thinking for me oh And before we stray too far away from the start of Dana's career, she mentioned she got one of her first costuming jobs via Mandy.com. You said you'd used it too. What was it? Well, I actually haven't used it, but I knew people who hadn't gotten jobs from it and stuff. It actually, it does still exist. Mandy.com is a job listing site for mostly non-union gigs in TV and film for actors and people of various creative departments, including costume design. So wow. if you're starting out in the industry, Mandy.com is a pretty good place to look to to think about sort of um, very entry level jobs. Wow. And Dana's career doesn't only seem to have been shaped by her earliest costuming jobs, but also by the things she did before she found that field. So in her case, that was acting and training to be an actor. As I mentioned last week, I have a good friend who worked in theater and opera costume shops for decades. Her training was more in costume history and craft, which is probably more relevant to opera where directors are often setting familiar works in different eras. So you need to be able to quickly signal to the audience, it's Otello, but it's set in Chicago in the 1960s. Right. But Dana's acting background takes her in a different direction, very psychological, more about what characters are signaling with their clothes like why is that guy always wearing a hat why is that woman trying so hard to push people away yeah absolutely and i think you can really see that in the work i mean you can really see that in particular in only murders in the building i mean you could imagine a world in which you push that too far like oh he wears (laughs) red because he's a violent man or you know whatever yeah but it's far more delicate and complicated than that she does for the characters, what a lot of actors do. They invent backstory. They think about what the character wants and why. And then she takes it that extra step of, you know, what clothing are they wearing? What that they might have chosen in order to accomplish those things, in order to, to get what they want, in order to have the effect they want to have on the world, whether it's getting through your day without being harassed on the street or convincing someone to invest in your play. I mean, that's the basics of acting right there, but it's really wonderful to see it reflected in this other medium. Mood boards are a huge part of Dana's creative process. She had me absolutely convinced of their importance and their usefulness to her. But I have to say, images, they just don't do that for me personally. Do you use any similar techniques to get you into the right frame of mind for a project? No, I I, I tend to use things like music. Mm. Um, or text actually, you know, specific pieces of text, movies, you know, things like that. Um, it's not the still image. I love still images. I love looking at photos. I love going to the museum. You know, it's, it's nothing against the still image, but it doesn't inspire me in the particular way that a mood board inspires Dana. Or actually we have a guest coming up in the future who, who also uses mood boards a lot. She said, so I, I, I don't know whether that's because I'm a writer, not a designer or whatever, but, uh, um, as a director, I like to see the designer's 
mood board because it's a really good way to have something to talk about. But I do not uh, make them myself. I even like this is a sort of dirty secret, I guess. But I even like you know those pages of photo inserts in the middle of the book of like mm-hmm. a nonfiction book. I I often skip them. Uh, yeah, it's just like it, it's not actually a thing I respond to. Even as I love graphic novels, I yep, love yep, comics, yep, I love yep. going to the Met. You know, it's yep. not like imagery befuddles me. It's just yep. not how I get creatively inspired. It's same with me. And in fact, um, you know, these days when you read ebooks, they'll often put the images in a separate file. And many of the time, I've just never opened them. I think if I do, generally it's like it's a biography, and I don't know what somebody looks like and I just kind of want to spy on them almost. Yeah, totally. Um, but I'm the same way. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, obviously we have one of those inserts in the method. I mean, like I had to choose the photos for one of those, which is a weird thing to do. Cause I had to sort of like play the part of someone who wanted to see these pictures and then try yeah. to figure out what they wanted to see because yeah. it's, it's actually a necessity. Like readers tend to really like that. And in fact, there are people who will buy the book just because they like those inserts of photos and they, you know, and, and it's just a completely foreign reading experience of what my own is. So I had to do a little bit of acting and get into the headspace of someone <laughs> who, you know, really wants to know what Lee Strasberg looked like when he was middle-aged or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So having now watched a few episodes of Only Murders in the Building, I have to say I'm in love with the setting. A big New York apartment building full of people. And, you know, in that particular type of building, almost all of them will be rich. Some of them will be famous. There are still, though, going to be a few people who've held on to or looked into their places. So you can always be running into new characters and they all get to dress a little differently as far as Dana's job goes. And I love that she created backstories for all the Arconians, you know, the people who live in the Arconia apartments. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she even creates backstories for, you know, extras, you know, and I I, I think that's really fun and kind of moving, actually, in a way. And and it makes every space in that show feel really full of life, which I think is actually one of the big creative challenges of making TV and film right now during the pandemic. You know, the um, casts are reduced. The number of people you can have on a shoot is smaller. Um, A lot of the spaces, even in Only Murders in the Building, a lot of those backgrounds are actually green screen. The actors are in front of a green screen. And so making it feel like an organic lived in world that is actually populated by individuals, not ideas of people, but individuals individual people is a real creative challenge. And I think the way her working methods address that challenge is is really fascinating. Of course, again, you can understand if it's pushed too far, if every character looks too interesting, then you don't know what to pay attention to, right? That's like the, the like, um, lower tier Wes Anderson film problem, Mm. right? Where everything is so interesting. You're just sort of like, what, what am I actually supposed to be paying attention to here? But she avoids that. It's, 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 it's a balance that you have to keep, but I think she stays on the right side of it. So Only Murders in the Building, it isn't just set in New York. It also features some of the amazing actors that are based here, some of whom are most known for theatre. I'm thinking, for example, of Jane Houdichel, who's an absolutely magnificent actress and who I didn't recognise in this show for several minutes because, as Dana said, she's usually cast in super dowdy roles And here she gets to wear really gorgeous outfits, very like statement glasses, really striking appearance. And I'm just glad that these days we have more chances to see these fantastic performers on our TV. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, the show has household names like Nathan Lane in it, but it also has those really extremely skilled theater actors like Jane or Michael Cyril Crichton, both of whom I'm lucky to say I've worked with actually, and Mm. are both very, very brilliant. And I mean, some of that is just the pandemic has made scheduling easier. People Mm. are less committed. You can get a bunch of people into a room. The show is structured in such a way that no one is working too many days in a row. You know, it's, it's a very cleverly designed show in that way to kind of take advantage of what's available. But some of it also, I think, stems from a desire on everyone's part, because it's there in the writing too, to make all of the denizens of the building as interesting as possible and to establish what's interesting about them as quickly as, as you can, you know, you think of there's the, um, the down on his luck therapist who's, you know, right. (laughs) The needy therapist, the needy therapist, uh, who keeps talking about how he takes Venmo in case people need an emergency session. I'm Dr. Grover Stanley, and I'm sure we're all grieving the loss of Tim Kono. If you need to talk privately about Tim or whatever, I live on six and I take Venmo. Ooh, a therapist is always a fun suspect. Plus, he's desperate. Always good. Due to the that character is like four lines, but you know, all, all you you could just imagine a whole world about him just even in those four lines. Totally. And making a show in New York provides costume designers with the reassurance that if the worst comes to the worst, they can always find something in a store within an hour. You know, from leaving the set to returning with the perfect costume. And that's a huge contrast with making a show in a rural setting or really in many of the cities. Yeah, or on a smaller budget, right? I mean, one oh, thing yeah, I was yeah. I was thinking about during this interview is that like, oh, right, this is a show that, you know, Hulu's put a lot of money into, right? Like that creates certain resources. Not every show has the budget where you can like, I'm going to buy 50 coats and then return all of them or, or <laughs> you know, whatever. And that's not yeah. to say that that makes it everything easy. I mean, money yeah. makes some things easier, but but that's just simply to say that, you know, different processes work for different environments and different conditions. And one of the things that the kind of process that Dana likes to work with, which is one that is iterative, which is one where, you know, you're inventing a lot on, you have a lot of options, then you're inventing a lot on the spot. You do a lot of background work on the idea, but then it's actual realizations, a little intuitive, you know, that there are certain conditions that make that easier than others. Yeah, for sure. Well, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And now, let me tell you how awesome a Slate Plus membership is. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, full access to all the articles on Slate.com, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and How to Do It. But I also hope you would like to support the work we do here on Working. It's only a dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thank you to Dana Covarubias for being our guest this week. It was a really wonderful conversation. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us. And enormous thank yous to our stellar producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with June's conversation with actor Tom Meissen. You might know him as uh, Ichabod Crane in Sleepy Hollow. Until then, get back to work.